all the warnings and everything that we see out there in the industry about business email compromise, it's still one of the most likely ways that you're going to have some type of payment, um, especially a large dollar payment fraud. All right, welcome to another episode of FI Today, the podcast where we talk about all things banks, credit unions, payments, and more. Kevin Miyamoto, co-founder, CEO of Identify, also known as Moto. Hello, Moto. And we have an op- awesome episode lined up for you all today. With me on the podcast is a is Scott Jones, current partner at Adams and Reese. He's a true payments expert, specifically around fraud. So really looking forward to have a really good conversation around payment fraud today. So Scott, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's uh, it's always a uh, it's always great to to be here and talk to people in the industry and uh, always good to see your face as well. Yeah, good good to see your face as well. So, Scott, before we dive into payment fraud, which that's a huge topic, but before we jump in, uh, give the listeners a back um, uh, backstory of uh, Scott Jones, who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I'm an attorney, payments attorney, and I've been uh, practicing law for uh, let's see, 17 years now. Uh, and I've I began working um, about 15 years ago uh, with the firm I'm at now, Adams and Reese. And uh, one of the partners that was here was a guy named Paul Caruba. And Paul, uh, has, you know, as we sit here today, is, is eclipsed 50 years in the payments industry. And I began helping him on various agreements and other issues. And then as fraud issues would come up, I would help him research those issues. And as he he kind of transitioned uh, uh, throughout his career, and he, he spends more time uh, doing the things that are fun, and I spend more time uh, digging into the, the work part. But uh, he, he's been a, a great, great mentor, a great person to work with, uh, and he still answers the phone every time I call today. So that's that's how I got into payments, though. Wow, great. Okay. And um, based in Mississippi. All right. And I've seen you, I've, I've seen you all around the country at different conferences talking about fraud. So- you know, you talk to hundreds of FIs, credit unions, community banks, regional banks throughout the year. And what are you seeing right now in terms of payment fraud? You know, I mean, the, the last few years have really been interesting. You know, you, you've, uh, as you and I have talked about before, I mean, you, you see um, there's been a lot of push towards, you know, faster payments, instant payments. There's been a lot of fear you know, I've seen in the industry about people being worried about that, and everybody's probably seen, you know, different kind of consumer push payment fraud uh, that gets published or written about in different articles. But, but to be honest with you, though, that is not where I'm seeing the largest amount of fraud. I mean, we're, you know, fraud is, has always been here, and it probably always will, will be, and it's it's why we need to, you know, be ever vigilant and educating customers and talking to them about what they're doing here. But what you know, we've seen a huge growth in probably the most mature payment area, which is check fraud. Yeah, um, I've probably been more involved in check fraud issues in the past, more check fraud issues in the past two years than I was the five years before that. So wow. Um, um, but then you know, funds transfer fraud has been huge too. So ACH and wire. Um, you know, despite all the warnings and everything that we see out there in the industry about business email compromise, it's still one of the most likely ways that you're going to have some type of payment, um, 
especially a large dollar payment fraud uh, in the industry. I mean, I feel like I get at least one one call a week where somebody says, "We've got a six seven figure loss. Um, uh, what what do we do?" Yeah, and those that's you know for a lot of those corporates out there, that's you know how can you survive that? Yeah, it's that's yeah, that. that's um you know acting quick is certainly part of it. But, you know, it's, it's also, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of tools that are in place that financial institutions have that they can get to their customers. I think what, what, what I see a lot of times is, you know, even a lot of financial institutions don't do a good job of effectively communicating what certain services do, what the, you know, how they benefit their customers and why they might want them. I mean, I, one one thing you know on check fraud, I'll give you an example here. Um, you know you, you've heard the phrase positive pay. You know it's a great check fraud prevention tool. Um, but you know I would challenge you go go ask your uh, go ask your your mom or your grandmother what is positive pay, and they're going to look at you cross-eyed. They have no idea. Oh, so for yeah, sure, so, it's, a, it's a just great example of how we come up with names in the industry that are effectively meaningless to the end user unless they know what it is. And well, so, think about, you can you can say in a sentence, when you upload your ACH file via, when you upload your uh, ACH NACHA file through your ERP, make sure you mark whether that ACH is PPD, CCD, or T. Like none of this makes sense to anyone else outside of payments. And yeah. to your point, the average consumer and a lot of corporates, they they just don't care. And they don't they don't know and they're not educated on the differences and and so yeah there's a there's a big communication gap there for sure yeah and then couple with that uh, you know what we've seen uh, in the past you know post COVID we've seen a lot of very experienced people in the industry just say I'm tired of all the you know that we're having to do here I, and and they we've had the great you know retirement we've got a lot of people in the industry walk away from the industry um, and you know we've lost a lot of, of, of brain power and and so it it's really important that we you know retrain people I mean frontline training getting people to, to know what they're doing within financial institutions and and you know how do you do that if somebody walks in on day one and they've never worked in payments it's not intuitive right it mm -hmm. really takes somebody to to, to hold their hand and walk them through it. And, and we need good mentors in the industry that will help train people. But, you know, we also live in a world that's all about efficiency and work, 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 and we don't have enough people. And so it's hard to train people and mentor them. And, you know, we, we focus so much on efficiency and just getting something done today. Yeah. But I think, I think you just are spot on in the, the education and passing down knowledge. Um, you think about, you know, you mentioned check fraud, the fraud rules and windows for check fraud versus card payments versus ACH versus wire, they're all different. But for a lot of folks, like if I were not in payments and let's say I sent you a payment, I would just think it's kind of, you know, they're all probably pretty similar, right? When in fact, they're just so different and the requirements for each, I, each FI who are initiating those payments or, or receiving those payments are just so different by channel there's just so much that goes into it that the average, you know, normal consumer doesn't see, but that FIs really need to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And, 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 you know, we in the industry don't do a good job about kind of speaking simply about issues and explaining them. And, and unfortunately we have, you know, 
a lot of laws and guidelines and regulations that don't speak simply. And so, uh, you know, I guess, I guess that's where it's a big passion of mine is how can we take complex, um, sometimes very technical information and communicate it in simple ways. And look, it's really important for how we communicate with our, with customers, you know, financial institution customers, our agreements need to be clear and concise, you know, disclosures need to be clear and concise. And then our, our, Internal training and external communication with clients needs to be, um, you know, our, our bank customers needs to be concise and clear as well. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you think about it, really your fraud as an FI is your customer's fraud, right? So if I'm, if I as a corporate am sending my vendor uh, a check, but really it's email business or wire, it's email business compromise, and I'm sending it to a, you know, a, a criminal or another third party that I wasn't supposed to be sending it to, really that could have been avoided if me as that FI customer, that corporate client, if I had better training to know what I should do to verify whether that that's really my vendor sending me an email, do I have dual control in place? What are the what are the procedures for sending a wire payment above X? If the FIs are more active in providing that best practice and guidance to those customers, then of course the the number of fraud cases would drop dramatically. Now that said, that's a very hard thing to do. I under, I understand that, but to your point, I think it really does start with education internally at the bank level, but then also to those uh, commercial or to those customers out there. Yeah, and I, I think you know engaging with bank customers, financial institution customers is so important. Of talking to them about you know, and a lot of times your customers don't want to talk to you, so it's. It's how can we uh, help them understand the importance of why we need to talk to them? How can we make what we're saying to them simple, clear, and concise? And then we don't take up so much of their time that they, they you know, or want to avoid us every time we come calling, asking them to do something. So, I mean, doing things and, you know, we live in the, in the Twitter world now. We need to do everything shorter, faster. You know, boom, boom, boom. Brand. Right. And it's uh, and I think that that's the way we need to think about training, too, is how can we you know, how can we think about, you know, 60 second, three minute, five minute maximum kind of education tools that can be pushed out. And, the, you know, that's another thing. I think the power of covid that we had when and all that, that pushing forward is that we got really comfortable. I mean, you and I are doing something right here on video that probably a few years ago we would have been really uncomfortable doing. So, yeah, that's uh, true. It, it's yeah. made us all a lot more comfortable looking into cameras and talking to things. And we can we can use that with our customers as well as pushing things out to them and content in, in a way that you don't even have to get up from your desk. You know, so it's it really is there, there's a lot of benefit there. And look, I, we don't know where it's going to go. I mean, we could you know, I hate to even bring up the topic of A.I., but I mean, um, that is something that I think is really going to be transformative in the industry, too. I don't think it's ready for prime time. I think we're, we're a ways away, but I think the, those are things that, that might, you know, training might be a great opportunity there, but uh, you know, as, as a, they say all the time, you know, even with that stuff, it's trust, but verify, don't, don't rely on all generated content. You really have to be engaged and involved and, and fact check that stuff because I've, I've seen a lot of examples of that where it's not even accurate. Yeah, no, hundred, hundred percent on the accuracy. And then kind of going back to your comment about, we're in the Twitter world. We want everything now, now, now. I'm guilty of that. I also want things now, now, now. Um, I think about 
there's a stat that Gartner put out like a couple of years ago where it was over, I think it was like 52 or 53% of millennial buyers want a rep-free buying experience, meaning they don't want to talk to any sales rep in that buying process. I know it's a little bit yeah. different with fraud and engagement, but just in general, you know, for it's important for FIs to think about as they're engaging with their customers, especially the younger generations, they often don't want to talk to a human. They want to do a lot of self-service online, watch a lot of short videos, more chat function. So everything is changing to be more digital. And um, and yeah, FIs really need to, to be ready for that. Yeah. Look, I've got uh, teenage daughters and it's it's fascinating to watch them. Uh, they they will text, uh, email, do anything else, you know, everything they do on me. But I'll, I'll say, pick up the phone and call them and talk to them. And they do not want to. <laughs> no, Dad, it's that's just, not how it works anymore. Right. <laughs> it's just, a, it's just a, a whole nother mindset of, you know, how can I do things where I don't, I, they just want it all to be kind of, it, it's more transactional rather than relational now, right? It's just, yeah. I, I want in, I want out, I want to check a box and get done. And, um, you know, I still think there's room for relational aspects uh, and, and and we need to look for opportunities to do that within the industry. But um, but I, I we are going to have to get very comfortable with kind of more hands-off or, or uh, voiceless uh, transactions to get things done. Yeah, you. I guess you and I are old school, Scott. We, we both... You know, that happens to him. Like, just pick up the phone and call. Yeah, what? Right. My, that restaurant doesn't take an open table reservation. I'm like, just call them. Just takes yeah, two seconds right. to call them. But I think you right. and I are the outliers. I think we're the we're the weirdos. Most people want to just do it online themselves. They don't want to talk to anyone. Yeah, yeah that's, so. I think that's right. And it's, I don't know where that age is, but unfortunately, I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm over, over the age where it, it seems <laughs> what, normal anymore. Yeah, yeah. Same, well, same, same here. Um, so, you know, go, kind of going back to, to payment fraud, Obviously, F this is still a huge topic for FIS today. Education, we, t we talked about is one thing. What are some other uh, low-hanging fruit kind of tips that FIS can do that would put them in a better position to combat fraud if they wanted to, to you know, work on that today? Yeah, I mean, one thing um, that, you know, going off, off the customer communication is, being in regular communication with your customer. You know, if you haven't talked to a customer in two or three years, maybe it's an opportunity to talk to them. You'd rather have that communication with them and be talking to them about things they can do to prevent fraud on their account before fraud happens. So it's it's a lot more of a you know difficult conversation after fraud happens. And then make And I have, sure I have a question on that real quick, just before we move on. So let's say that I'm an FI and you, you work at my customer, ABC customer. And I haven't talked to you for two weeks, but two years, but then I go back and I talk to you and I say, you know, Scott, looks like your account does not have positive pay. You should go ahead and implement it. And you say, no, I do not want it. Is it important at all for that FI to document that communication? Or is that not really relevant in any kind of fraud case? It's 100% important. Okay. And yeah, there's a, there's, there has been dispute in the industry and there's been some cases that have talked about this, but I mean, I, I am a firm believer that on things like positive pay, um, we need to give our customers a binary decision. You know, it, you, do you write checks? And if you do, I want you to in writing accept or reject positive pay. So here, here's what the services are. Say yes, you want it or say no, you don't. And I, 
it's it's slightly more complicated than that. I mean, we, there's some language we can put in our agreements. Um, there are things that that we can do to to check the box. But I I do believe um, you know again courts will ultimately ferret that out. But I do believe that that has a risk shifting benefit to financial institutions. To one, can you say you've explained it to them? You know, we need to explain the service, what it is, not not some legalese document, but like what is positive pay? What does it actually do? How does it benefit your customer? Give them the yes, no option. Tell them how it works. And then if there's fees involved, we need to communicate what those fees are. And look, I've seen a wide variety there, too, of, of some people even giving the service away because they see more benefit. I've seen that, to- too. Recently, a couple, couple of banks I've talked to. We'll give it away for free because it's an added benefit for the bank ultimately too. So that's, uh, you know, that that's for each individual, you know, financial institution to decide. But that's certainly, you know, that's certainly one thing is making sure your documentation is in place that can protect you. You know, the 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 frequent communication. It's almost. I think we ought to have every. You know, I, I always say it in my in when I present around, but I almost think we need to treat our customers almost like we we have oil changes in our car. You know, maybe it's not quarterly, but maybe it's annually or biannually. If we haven't talked, we should reach out to the customer, talk to that customer. If we notice that they have obvious services that would benefit them that they're not using, you know, make make the offer to, to the customer. And then also you're confirming things. I mean. Who has authority to act on behalf of customers? You know, thinking through your resolutions, is this information still accurate? Um, you know, those are all things that that ultimately benefit financial institutions and and help them to ensure that what they are doing and the, um, the, the directions they are receiving from their customer are consistent with what that customer wants. And that has benefits for the customer too, right? It's not just a, this isn't just about how do we protect banks. It's about how do we ensure that we're doing everything we can on both sides of the house to prevent fraud uh, because preventing fraud is preventing customer, you know, dollars from going out the money unwanted. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that one of the, one of the other big things is if, if you're a bank or a credit union, you need to arm your team with the tools to be able to effectively do that. So if you have, just, um, you know, let's say you don't have a CRM, everything's done on Excel, you just have a Word doc that explains the benefits of positive pay in this example. There's, how do you track it? How do you know if the customer looked at it? Is there any kind of signed agreement or acknowledgement that they did not move forward with it? You can't expect them to do everything. You need to have the tools in place to make it easy, especially for those client-facing reps to document and track all of those things. Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of the a lot of the bigger banks are thinking about that, especially in terms of speeding up sales delivery. That's one of them in terms of document collection, um, retention, storage, all of those things you get up front. That's really important. What I'm seeing at the community bank and credit union level is that because they don't have the technology, oftentimes of the larger banks, a lot of that process and documentation is lacking. And, you know, so that's that's why I brought up the question, because if if in your um, legal opinion, it is a stronger case if you can show that you did, in fact, try to share with the customer best practices and the customer declined, then that's something that I think a lot of those credit unions and community banks should probably seriously look at. Yeah, and I think, I mean, using the positive pay example, you know, if you have a customer that 
for four years in a row, row has rejected positive pay and, and you have some kind of writing. Maybe, maybe you've even pushed out some type of education about what positive pay is and why its benefit is out there and you can track that. And then they have fraud in their account and the, the fraudulent check would have been caught as an exception item by positive pay. I think you got a pretty good argument that customer, you're responsible for this because we have offered it to you every year for four years and you've said no. Um, and you know, you, we need to have language that matches what we're trying to do here, but to say, look, you get your customers to agree. I, I understand and acknowledge by rejecting positive pay, it increases the likelihood of fraud in my account. I mean, that that's true. It absolutely is true. And, um, and if customers don't like signing that, um, then say, then enroll in it, do it. We, we would love for you to use it. And, and, and then if you have a customer that really gets, you know, says I'm not signing anything or agreeing to anything. Well, then I think we need to get, we also need to get comfortable with are are we as financial institutions comfortable banking people that are completely flippant about fraud and unwilling to engage in the process of protecting themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at that, at that point, at that point, it's risk reward. How much revenue is it bringing to the financial institution versus how much are you liable for? I mean, right. there's a, there's a big, uh, cost benefit ratio analysis they need they need to perform so um i cut i cut you off though that that was a long <laughs> that was a long response for the uh the 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 positive pay issue in the in that so i know education was one being in regular communication with your fi is another um did you have any other kind of tips yeah, or the, advice the, that you could give you documentation i mean having a regular process to review your documentation and being aware of what's going on in the industry and how you might want to tweak and modify that. And then the last, which this is a, a part of documentation, but authority, ensuring that who you are dealing with and the people doing things for your customer are actually authorized to do it. I think that from a legal perspective, that's what I see is one of the most overlooked things in the industry. You know, we, we have our paperwork and we do it, but we don't really spend a lot of time talking about authorization. And, you know, it's, it's, we, we, we talk about a lot in terms of like authentication for getting people to, you know, make payments and do things, but you know, how do we ensure that the person that is authenticated is authorized on behalf of a business? Yeah. That's a li little trickier, but uh, those are, those are the things that I, that, that I guess, keep me, uh, keep me awake and keep me motivated. And what I see frequently is, um, you know, major areas of improvement in a lot of our institutions. Yeah, no, this, this was, this was great stuff, Scott. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. And if listeners out there want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, you, you can email me scott.jones at arlaw.com. Uh, be, be probably an easy way. Uh, and then, um, that, you can find me on, on our website as well, adamsonreese.com. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Scott, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Again, really appreciate it. And for those listening at home, we'll see you on the next one.